0: Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you.
1: Sign up at wideismypartner.com slash events.
0: Welcome to the Connectfulness Practice Podcast. Here, we settle into the murky, tangled, and freaking hard parts of life to restore our relationship with the self, so it can ripple out to the people we love, the work we do, and the world around us. If we can't fix what's wrong, then our grandchildren inherit it. In order to fix what's wrong, we have to talk about it. And we can't move that conversation forward if we're not willing to be real about where we are now. We have to push on the edges of what it means to connect. Otherwise, nothing will ever change. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, and I'm here to guide you through a series of radically honest conversations about what it means to be truly human in all of its messy, beautiful, hilarious, and heartbreaking glory. In our collective effort of looking inward, we're starting to do the outward work to reconnect the world. While these discussions will guide you into the Connectfulness Practice, This podcast is not meant to be a substitute for the depth of work that you'd encounter with a licensed provider. If something in this episode touches you, reach out. That's where you initiate the ripple that restores relationships. You can learn more about my Connectfulness Counseling Practice and our Collective for Therapists in Private Practice at connectfulness.com. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Coronavirus Online Therapy. A nonprofit organization with pending 501c3 status, whose mission is to deliver free or low-cost online therapy by licensed professionals in all 50 U.S. states to essential workers during the coronavirus pandemic. Coronavirus Online Therapy is also working to offer free workshops and CEUs with pandemic-specific topics to their network of psychotherapists. Its vision is to eliminate common obstacles such as the cost and accessibility that can prohibit clients from receiving services. If you're on the front line seeking a referral, if you're a therapist who'd like to join the initiative, or if you're interested in getting involved in another way, go to coronavirusonlinetherapy.org. In this episode, I'm talking with Emily Nagoski. Emily is the award-winning author of the New York Times bestseller, Come As You Are, the surprising new science that will transform your sex life. Come As You Are is based on groundbreaking research in brain science that tells us that the most important factor for women in creating and sustaining a fulfilling sex life is not what you do in bed or how you do it, but how you feel about it. So this means that stress, mood, trust, and body image are essential to a woman's sexual well-being. That led Emily to write her second book, Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle, which is co-authored with her twin sister, Amelia. Burnout is for women who feel overwhelmed and exhausted by all they have to do, yet worry that they're not doing enough. You could say that Emily's mission in life is to teach women to live with confidence and joy inside their bodies. This is a powerful conversation to be having about sex and stress under any circumstance. And while we're living through a pandemic and quarantined in our homes, it's perhaps even more potent. Because when we're stressed, pleasure diminishes and desire goes away. It's harder to feel fun, sexy and safe. We're going to talk about how you can rediscover connection. We're going to talk about the characteristics that make up a long-term great sex life, and some things that partners who are having trouble can do to find a shift. And before we begin, I want to just take a moment to wish all of our mothers and all those who are mothers a very happy Mother's Day. Let's dive in. Emily, welcome. Hello so glad to have you here today.
1: I am so glad to be here too.
0: Yeah. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. And I know we originally scheduled it months ago before coronavirus was was the pandemic that we're all living through. And this felt like a really important conversation then. It feels more important now.
1: I feel the same way. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So you're talking about things like burnout and stress in your new book, and you're also Mm -hmm. talking about the science that transforms our sex lives. And I'm really curious about the merge between the two of these, because to me, as a relationship therapist, it just feels natural that stress is going to affect sex.
1: Uh, Yes. And the reason why a stress book followed my sex book, the usual, like if you write a sex book and it goes well, um, the publishing industry either wants you to write like another sex book, like this one's uh, basically about women, now write a book about men or write a book for couples. Uh, And instead, back in 2015, when Come As You Are came out, I traveled all over America talking to people about the science of women's sexual well-being. And this thing kept happening over and over. At the end of my talks, women would approach me and say, yeah, all that sex science is great, but you know what really changed everything for me was that one chapter about stress and feelings. And I was I was really surprised by this. But I told my sister, I have an identical twin sister um, who's a choral conductor, and I t- said this to her, people are really affected by all this stuff about the stress response cycle and emotion processing. And she was like, yeah, no shit. Remember when I learned that stuff and it, you know, saved my life twice, she mm-hmm. said. And I was like, so we should write a book about that. And that is why burnout is the next book.
0: Oh, amazing. Because it's, it's the total truth. Like when our stress cycles are activated.
1: Yeah, when we're in the middle of it and our chemistry is just totally out of whack it like, makes per- perfect sense for pleasure to diminish and for desire to drift away
0: and yet the pleasure is so important because it brings us back to our life to to like being alive
1: i have actually like the longer i talk about this the more interconnection I see between these two topics, partly because um, one of the things we learn in Chapter 3 of Come As You Are is that our experience of pleasure depends on the context in which we experience sensations. So tickling is the classic example of this. If you're in a fun, flirty, playful, sexy, erotic context with your certain special someone and they tickle you, it's not everybody's favorite, but at least hypothetically, you can imagine a situation where that feels really good, And leads to other things, whereas if you're really pissed off with that person and they try to tickle you, you want to punch them in the face a little (laughs) bit. It's exactly the same sensation, but because the context, the emotional context is different, your brain interprets that sensation totally differently. So pleasure is not as simple as just touch me here or don't touch me that way. It's about creating a context that lets your brain interpret sensations as sexy, as pleasurable, as fun, as safe. And that simply does not coexist with threats. With, yes, with
0: threat. Because what's happening when you're under threat or when you're under stress, even if it's an internalized stress, but right now with the pandemic, we're all living through a very externalized stress. Absolutely. So so when we're living through this stress, that ability to get into that pleasurable, safe space is what's being hampered.
1: Yeah. And it's doubly destructive because particularly in the context of social distancing, um, where we're sort of like stuck with maybe one set of people who may or may not be the people we would have chosen, um, being able to connect Emotionally in a state of mind of safety is absolutely essential for our survival emotionally through this experience Mm -hmm. And when we feel stressed out, it deprives us of our ability to access pleasure Which reduces our motivation to pursue sexual connection Even though sexual connection can be a really powerful way for us to feel connected to like our shared humanity So it's this catch-22 we get sucked into this negative feedback loop right
0: and I, and i can just like imagine a lot of different scenarios where maybe one partner is working on the front lines or has had a harder time social distancing and you know there can be fears that partners might have about bringing yeah. the virus home right now or partners are physically separated and they can't get to each other or mm-hmm. people are dating and they you know aren't living together and so they're not seeing each other and there's there's just so many different scenarios that are making
1: co-parents living with your children and both working from home and you're constantly exhausted and trying to share all this responsibility and neither of you can really leave for any extended period of time to get space that's really important in order you're talking about me (laughs) (laughs) like that's not necessarily going to foster eroticism
0: It makes it a lot harder.
1: Like you have to make a lot of deliberate effort to create that context when the rest of your world is that situation.
0: So can you talk to us a little bit about that deliberate effort and why it's important? Like why should we not just let that go right now?
1: Well, for one thing, you everybody has 100% permission to let that go right now. If that is not where your brain and body need to go, Sex is not actually a biological drive. It is not a need. Nobody's going to die. What sex does for us, the most important thing it does for us is give us a sense of connection with this other person whom we, you know, hypothetically love and trust and want to share a connection. When our bodies touch, when our skin touches another person's skin, it changes our chemistry. It actually can help you process stress if you're not so stressed out that you cannot tolerate the contact.
0: But you said a really important word in there. You talked about trust. Mm-hmm. And, and that is like the foundation for really being able guess. to get into this, this sexy place, into this place yeah, where and- sex is healthy and feels good. Well, is healthy even the right word to use there? Where it feels like it's not going to stress you out more.
1: Yeah, where it's, oh, there's so many things about sex itself that can be stressful, like it feels like an obligation, or a duty, or like a thing you could be failing at, so there's just like your performance anxiety, and judgment, and shame, and all the different ways that we can fail at sex. If the rules in your head around sex make it possible to fail, now is a great opportunity to See if there are rules you want to change for yourself in your life. Mm-hmm. And trust is one of the it's like maybe the key relationship characteristic of couples who sustain a strong sexual connection, especially over the long term. So there is research on these couples who have great sex over the long term and uh, they have two characteristics in common. Um, before I tell you what they are, let me tell you what they're not. Because people have a very, mis- like the mainstream popular idea of what a great sex life looks like over the long term is totally not what it looks like when you look at the actual research. It is not couples who uh, have sex very often. Hardly any of us have sex very often. We are busy It is not couples who necessarily have wild, adventurous sex. Some of them do, but that's not a key characteristic. It's not couples who are either monogamous or non-monogamous. That is not predictive of sustaining a great sexual connection over the long term. Any relationship structure can have it or not have a great sexual connection. Instead, these are couples who, first of all, have a strong friendship and trust at the foundation of their relationship. So let's talk just for a second about trust. I follow the definition from Sue Johnson, the founder of Emotionally Focused Therapy. The question, are you there for me? And R is, it stands for emotionally accessible, emotionally responsive, and emotionally engaged. Are you there for me? Trust is this being there for the person is so essential for sex because think of how much vulnerability you're showing up with. Like you might be showing your partner parts of your body almost no one else in the world will ever see. You're letting them touch parts of your body, put their mouth on parts of your body. You might put your mouth on parts of their body. Let them put a part of their body inside your body, or you might be putting a part of your body inside someone else's body. And if you show up for that level of vulnerability, you let them see your body, and their response is anything short of, yay, and Wow. And thank you. Like if they're just like, Oh, you're here. Mm. Yeah. That's kind of deflating. (laughs) Yeah. Like we so need our partners to be there for us in this very intense, profound way. And when we communicate about sex, we need to be, I think gentler and more compassionate and loving and supportive and tender with each other because we are all so afraid of doing it wrong, of falling short of our partner's expectations, of failing, of not being the best partner they ever had. Yeah. So, that the trust is really important because we're also vulnerable around sexuality. And the second key characteristic is that these are the couples who sustain a strong sexual connection over the long term, prioritize sex. They make a decision that it matters in their relationship. They stop doing the childcare and the jobs and the grocery shopping and the scrolling through the infinite news feed of all the numbers and statistics and what's the difference between a flu virus and a coronavirus and maybe that's something I need to learn more about. You stop all that stuff. You cordon off time and space to put your body in the bed with this other person, let your skin touch their skin and allow your senses to wake up and go, all right, I really like this person. I really like this but that's the important
0: piece, that you you prioritize allowing your senses to wake up together.
1: Yeah. And it is difficult for any number of reasons, but I find that people get stuck uh, on two things. First of all, they get stuck on the fact that, you know, you set up the time, Saturday at three o'clock, you, me, in the red underwear. The kids are going to be out of the house, and we're going to do this thing. So you show up, Saturday at three o'clock, you, me, in the red underwear, and like, Before that happens, you're like putting the last of the dishes in the dishwasher. You're putting the last load of laundry in the dryer. um, And you see it like tromp up the stairs and you go into the bedroom and you lie in the bed and you're like, all right, I guess this is what we're doing now. And you think that the way you feel right then is predictive of the way you're going to feel once you get started. And if you insist that that's true, like if you cling to, I don't feel like doing this right now. Um, then, then that's, then you're going to make that true. There's a a therapist in New Jersey named Christine Hyde who taught me this metaphor. Um, she'll say to her clients, uh, so imagine you're invited to a party by your best friend. Of course you say yes, because it's a party and it's your best friend. Um, but as the date gets closer, you start thinking, oh, there's going to be heavy traffic, Oh, I'm gonna have to find childcare. Do I really want to put on party clothes at the end of a long week like that? I don't know. Uh, but you know what? You said you would go, so you put on your party clothes and you show up to the party. And what happens?
0: You're going out of obligation, so you're gonna have a icky time, probably. I mean, unless you can change your mood once you get there.
1: So I offer this metaphor a lot, and it is extremely rare that anyone gives that answer and doesn't say. You know, once you get there, you have a good time at the party. You show up, the music is playing, and you can have a glass of wine, and you see people that you really love, and you're so glad to be with them, and you relax, and your body goes, oh, right, I like these people. I enjoy doing this. But the metaphor only works if the party you're showing up for is a party you want to be at. Right. So do you like the people you're participating in? Are they playing the kind of party games you enjoy? How's your relationship with those people? Are you allergic to the food they're serving? How do you feel about the music? And there is no amount of wanting, craving going to parties that will make that party worth going to if it's not the kind of party that's for you. Right. So the first reason people get stuck, I find, is that they think that the way they feel as they get ready is how how they feel always and forever. They just get stuck in it and they think it's not possible to transition from one state of mind to the sexy state of mind. And we can talk about rituals people use to do the transitioning from one state of mind to another. But the second thing people get hung up on is the idea that they shouldn't have to transition from one state of mind to the other state of mind. They think it should just appear out of the blue. Desire should be spontaneous and involuntary, and if you have to plan it or if you have to like work for it, then it's not natural, and it's not like, how much does your partner really want you or want to have sex with you if you have to schedule it and then like make a plan and take a bath for half an hour and read a sexy novel in the tub? Like, do you really want your partner? And the thing is, yes. Is there anything sexier? First of all, nothing that really matters to me happens unless it's on my calendar, period. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. But second of all, is there anything that says, I fucking love you and want you more than cordoning off a I'm few on your hour, calendar. some time, be like, I. this is for you. Like, I only have 24 hours a day, I only have seven days a week, but this chunk of time is for you and me to rest our sweaty skins next to each other baby
0: <laughs> that is the sexiest thing i think that anybody can do for you know their partner is to just show up and say the rest of the world can does does not matter right now yeah you are what matters
1: yeah and that goes against what most of us get taught great sex looks like in the long term but when you look at the research on people who have extraordinary sex lives They don't describe spontaneous desire. It barely shows up in their list of key characteristics of great sex. They talk a lot about preparation, doing the laundry, preparing the food, getting dressed.
0: And when when I catch my husband folding laundry, that is like the sexiest turn on in the world.
1: Yeah, I actually, one of the things I've gotten to do recently is teach uh, writing sex workshops. And I get to hear amazing stories that people write based on their own experiences. Some of them are fiction. But one story that someone wrote and then read to the group was about her and her husband having set up like a date night. And she had had a really long, exhausting week, but she took off her clothes and she got into the bed and she's lying there waiting for her husband to come up. And she's just lying there and waiting and waiting and kind of like, come on. Can we just get this? Can we do this? And he comes up and he's naked and carrying the laundry basket. And he closes the door and he starts like hanging up the laundry and folding it. Hey, baby, have I got some laundry for you? I'm going to hang up your t-shirts because I know that's how you like it. It doesn't make any sense to hang up a t-shirt, but I'm going to hang up your t-shirts, baby. (laughs) Got me cracking up over here. And that's... (laughs) That's, are you there for me? Like, I am yeah. here for you. I understand and appreciate your needs. Like, it's a sense of humor is a major partner characteristic. And like, it was playful and fun.
0: And I'm sitting here thinking, like feeling the laughter come through me as you're sharing the story and thinking about like, that is such a great turn on. Right? I mean, to, to embrace your partner in that
1: kind of joy filled space. Yes, please. And, like, not take it too seriously and not be afraid of, like, judgment or shame or thinking that sex has to be limited to specific acts. Like, putting laundry away is absolutely foreplay in the right context. Can we we explore that a little bit? Because I think
0: that this is a huge piece. Taking sex seriously, I think, is, like, the downfall of sex.
1: Yeah, the fear and the sort of, like, performance demand of doing it right. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that has really escalated in the age of internet porn. Oh my goodness, yes. S- since our sex education is really so inadequate. Um, what sex of- education? Exactly. Uh, okay. Most people's sex education, a lot of it is coming from porn. I myself mostly had my like, high school age sex education came from reading romance novels.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I thought that was an accurate representation of sex. Turns out, no, this is not a diss on romance novels. I love romance novels. I do a lot of work around sexual violence. I require happily ever afters in my life, you know? And romance is a place where I can get that. Plus, they're sexy, fun stories. Yeah. And there's a really big problem with them representing sex in a way that just does not match how sex actually works in the real world. Um, And it's a real challenge in the narratives around romance stories for them to be very angsty and sad. And the sexual motivation is driven by this like fearful, I'm afraid to connect with this person, or I'm afraid I'm going to lose this person. And there's so much like distress around the sexuality instead of being being about laughter and pleasure and joy and friendship and fun.
0: I remember this is decades ago. I was studying with Dr. Sandra Lieblum. And one of the things that. Shut oh my God,
1: you studied with Sandra Lieblum?
0: Yeah, I did. Oh. <laughs> And this this was a long time ago, and one of the things that she she was talking about was kind of like when when you can get in the shower with someone and be all awkward and like you're bouncing up on things and you're hitting your head on on the shower and you know you're, it's all awkward and awful like that's the best sex that there is. Yeah. That good sex is awkward sex.
1: I would argue that uh, much good sex is awkward. And there's absolutely such a thing as completely unawkward. Let's have very simple sex where we just like have sex with each other and totally. it's familiar and comfortable. I think that can be great sex too.
0: I, I love that kind of sex. I think the, the point is that, you know, our bodies make noises, they do things. Like it, we don't yep. have to be in the shower to get to that level of awkwardness, but awkwardness happens. And when we can embrace that in a yeah. sexual space, we're really like allowing the pleasure in. When we're yeah. worried about keeping that awkwardness away,
1: yeah. If you're like hearing your vagina queef, like little, little squirty fart noises, and you can laugh at that, what you, if you're having intercourse, like penis and vagina intercourse at the time that happens. that happens, when you laugh, you can feel the laughter in your genitals. It's actually amazing. It's wonderful. And sometimes, you know, people get charley horses they stay in a position as you age, your body doesn't want to stay in a certain position for as long as it used to. And you end up getting a cramp and somebody goes, ah, and it's and you're, what happened? I got a charley horse in my calf. Like you just yeah. got to be all right with that. <laughs>
0: yeah. You have to change positions for a variety of different reasons. You know, like right. all of these things happen and this, if we can be gentle about it, if we can be accepting of it, it, it yes. doesn't have to create more stress during sex. It can One allow the- for connection.
1: uh, there's this whole body of research on optimal sexual experiences from a team led by Peggy Kleinplatz at the University of Ottawa. Uh, And what she has learned from interviewing dozens of people who self-identify as having extraordinary sex lives, uh, well, first of all, so average age among her participants, she advertised to look for people who identify as having great sex lives, average age at which they report their first extraordinary sexual experience was 55
0: 55?
1: Yes. So already we have lots of hope.
0: Oh my goodness, and, that's beautiful.
1: Yeah. And one that's the across most,
0: the board, all genders?
1: Yeah, all genders. This is one of the things I love about this research is the first sex science I genuinely don't have to apologize for. Like, well, it's pretty heterocentric or it's pretty like monogamy centric or it's pretty like cisgender centric. It's It includes literally everyone. It's vanilla centric. No, it includes everyone. Kinky people, queer people. Um, people of any gender, people of all ages and uh, like sort of bodies. And one of the most important things that I learned from this research is that functional sex is, as defined by like, you know, the, the sexual response cycle and the triphasic model and all of that, functional sex is not a prerequisite for extraordinary sex.
0: Can you break that down for my listeners who might not understand all those?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So like sex therapists and uh, sexual medicine specialists have this sort of like clinical standard that they're looking for, like erections should happen and blood flow and vaginal lubrication and orgasm in various kinds of stimulation. These are the sort of like standards you should be able to check off in order to be sexually functional according to a medical standard. Mm -hmm. It turns out people who have extraordinary sex lives, because on average their first experience is at 55, which means half of them, it's older than that. Mm -hmm. Your body is not necessarily doing the same things it was at 55 uh, as it was when you were 25. Right. Like your your blood flow is different and your body shape is different. You start to get other health issues accumulating. One of the people she interviewed had to pause the interview briefly to go get his oxygen tank because he had COPD. This did not interfere with the fact that he had an extraordinary sex life. He so experienced intense erotic pleasure in his life.
0: What I'm making up about this without having read this research, but what I'm making up is that it's about letting go of expectations.
1: A hundred percent. When she asks, okay, so so this is a big deal. How did you get here? How did you get from having just a regular sex life to this? The first thing they say in their stories is I had to forget everything I had ever been taught about bodies, gender, sex, trust, love, everything, pleasure, the very nature of trust, and start from scratch. I had to let go of all that stuff and relearn what sex meant for me and what pleasure feels like in my body and in my relationships based just on my own internal experience and my partner's.
0: That is so big. Like right? I, I, Her- I want to blow that up. Like just forget everything that you think you learned and yeah. you got to learn it again now based on what this feels like in your body and
1: your partner's. Peggy's book actually just came out. She co-wrote it with a former student of hers, Dana Maynard. It's called, here's the best book title in the world. Magnificent Sex, Lessons from Extraordinary Lovers. That's wonderful. Yeah. So um, what I'm talking about is not the sort of standard narrative of what sex in a long-term relationship can look like. <laughs> when people think about what, what do you want, your, one of the things Peggy asks her client is, uh, uh, so what kind of sex is worth wanting? And they'll describe. People sometimes don't know. That's pretty typical, actually. And they'll have to think about it and pause and think, like, what, what sex is actually worth wanting? Do you even like the sex you are having? This is the, the party metaphor. If you're having fun at the party, you're doing it right. If you like the sex you are having, you are doing it right. So
0: how, how do we help people get to discovering 'Cause I think that's the big piece here, right? When we're taught all these lessons and we don't know what it is that that even feels good to us. How do how do we help people get to that point of discovering what they like?
1: What I kind of party do they want to go to? There's uh yeah, there's a few different pathways people can follow to get there and a few different sorts of input that are helpful. In Peggy's research, she divides it into sort of two pathways, either from sort of an intrapersonal place to an interpersonal place, where they sort of have a personal epiphany of like, there must be more than this. And they go on a quest inside themselves and out in the world to discover what's true about them and what they love about their own internal experience, and they bring that to their partnership. And for some people, it begins with their partnership, they find something in themselves through their relationship that they never knew before that opens a gateway into extraordinary erotic pleasure. Um, and many people like to use like storytelling and metaphor and like exploring their own history. Like, where did I learn these messages? Do I want to keep these messages? In Come As You Are I Use this garden metaphor. But on the day you're born, you're given this little plot of rich and fertile soil. And on that day, your family and your culture start to plant ideas about bodies and trust and sex and pleasure and love and safety. And uh, as you get older, they teach you how to tend the garden. Uh, And by the time you get to be an adult, you have this garden and you have some skills for tending it. And you didn't get to choose anything. You didn't get to choose the garden and you didn't get to choose what got planted. When you get to be an adult, You can, if you choose, take a moment and go row by row through the garden and make some choices about the things you want to keep and the things you want to pull out, weed out the stuff that isn't serving you, that isn't making your life better, and throw that stuff on the compost heap to rot and fertilize the stuff you're choosing.
0: And then you can choose what you add in to that empty space.
1: Yeah, you can, like, it creates breathing room because the stuff you want to pull out, it's not just that that's, like, toxic, like a poisonous plant if you eat it. It's that it might be strangulating other plants that you really want to be flourishing. Right. That makes complete sense. So, like, the personal exploration is really important. I have found with Come As You Are that people feel very empowered by the science when they can see, like, no, when you look at it empirically, Pretty much everything you ever taught about how sex works is not true, <laughs> and we are finally getting to a place in the science where I can explode Let all the things you assumed, like desire is supposed to be spontaneous and out of the blue in order for it to be natural, or like the key to improving sexual pleasure or desire is to like increase sexual stimulation of some kind. No, it turns out a much more effective way to increase, increase pleasure and desire is to get rid of the stuff that's an obstacle. So don't add role play and lube and lingerie. Get rid of the stress. Improve the trust. Um, Give yourself more time and space to transition out of your mundane state of mind into a sexy state of mind.
0: Right. So now we're back to scheduling time to do the laundry naked together.
1: Right. (laughs) And and take a shower and let it be silly. Right.
0: Yeah. 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 I mean, that makes total sense to me. And, you know, we've also in, in the context of that scheduling and, uh, kind of rewriting it all, we've also gotten rid of a lot of stress.
1: Yes. Cause uh, one of the main stressors that can interfere with sexual response is stress about sex. Mm
0: -hmm. Like,
1: again, if you have a sort of script in your mind of how sex is supposed to work, and the way your sexuality actually works doesn't match that script, you start to criticize yourself and feel beat up. And do you suppose that makes it easier to want or like the sex available in your life?
0: Well, it doesn't make it easier to, to feel much of anything but more critique. Right,
1: yeah. And it, you get like sucked down into this vortex of like wishing your sexuality was different, trying to make it different failing to make it different and feeling even more critical of yourself, which just shuts things down even more. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the main ideas in Come As You Are is this dual control model, which is the the mechanism in your brain that controls sexual response. Dual control model means there's two parts. The first part is a sexual accelerator, which responds to all the sex-related information in the environment, everything that you see, hear, smell, touch, taste or crucially think, believe, or imagine that your brain codes as related to sex and it sends the turn on signal, right? Great. And it functions at a, all the time at a subconscious level, including right now, mm-hmm. uh, like we're talking about sex, which is a little bit sex related. So there's a little bit of accelerator happening right now. And at the same time, your second mechanism, the brakes are noticing all the good reasons not to be turned on right now. So this is everything that you see, hear, smell, touch, taste, think, believe, or imagine that your brain codes as a potential threat. Right. This is stress. It is relationship difficulties. It is um, ill health. It is all the life circumstances around us, worry about money and the kids and identity and trauma, and also ludic factors, which is a technical term. Ludic comes from the same root word as ludicrous, and it means playfulness. This is your ability to like roll around like puppies in the bed and just rump and have, have permission to do whatever you want to do. Cause this is the thing about sex and humans. As long as everybody involved is glad to be there and free to go at any time, you're allowed to do whatever you want. There isn't actually a script you need to follow. But that
0: that's a huge piece there and that everybody is glad to be there and free to go at any time. Yeah. That's what creates that freedom. That spaciousness.
1: Yes. And it is a thing that people get really – there's this thing I call the chasing dynamic where one partner has higher desire than the other. And so that person initiates a whole bunch. We'll call that person A. And then person B has lower desire and feels a little pressured by all the initiation partner A is doing. And also feels a little, like, judged and criticized, but also, like, ashamed of themselves and, like, they should be doing sexuality different. They're worried that something's wrong with them. So, and person A, meanwhile, feels terrible being rejected all the time and worries that they might be broken for wanting sex too much. So both people feel terrible, basically. (laughs) And the solution to this is to take sex entirely off the table for an extended period of time.
0: What do you define as an extended period of time? Just
1: People need to decide that for themselves, okay. but I feel like a couple of weeks is not going to do it. Mm-hmm. Like what you're looking for, the way you know you've had enough time is that when you, because you're not going to stop loving each other. You're not going to stop touching, but you're going to take away all the performance pressure. So you take sex off the table until the lower desire person no longer fears that by kissing and hugging their partner, their partner is going to feel like they are initiating sex and now there's pressure to perform.
0: Because that's the thing, that often when people are engaged in any kind of physical way with each other, it automatically means, oh, let's go to orgasm.
1: Right. Yeah. And when you have a fear that the slightest contact is going to lead to sex and you just dread that, first of all, dread. Is a very good sign that there's something maybe a little to adjust in your sex maybe. life. That's not awesome. Um, so, for example, I, I got to watch at a training, a uh, therapist work with a couple who uh, one partner had lower desire. So she had them, she stand up and create as much physical distance as you need in order to feel like there's not any risk of something pressure or demand and the lower desire partner created 20 feet of space. That's huge. Yeah. She's still with her back against the wall.
0: Probably would have taken more space if there was more space to take. Yeah.
1: Like as much space as she was given is as much space as she would have taken. And so if that therapist had gone the standard route of say, sensate focus and said, okay, so take sex off the table, but you're going to like do these exercises where you take off your clothes and you alternate touching each other. That partner who needs 20 feet of space isn't getting it, is not ready for that yet.
0: So you're putting, you're putting kind of like the, the wheel, the steering wheel in that person's hand and you're saying, okay, you drive the car now.
1: And it's up to the higher desire partner to stay still, to be able to be peaceful and open with their like they're longing for this person and their desire they get to go through a whole process of exploring one of my favorite questions now is what is it that you want when you want sex because it's not just orgasm you can have an orgasm by yourself so what is it that you want when you want sex do you want the connection do you want to feel wanted do you want to feel powerful do you want what is it exactly that you want when mm-hmm. you want sex and as a person like sort of gets deep into what it means to them when they want sex they get to find that some of the things that they want when they want sex, they might be able to get in other ways. And that takes some of the pressure off of the sex, which frees up a whole lot of space for sex to be fun instead of just this like desperate driven attempt to get some other need met.
0: I think that's so incredibly powerful because it also empowers, it empowers both partners. It empowers the lower drive partner to be the one in the driving seat right there. Mm-hmm. But it also empowers the higher drive partner to figure out other ways to meet those needs and not conflate them
1: all with sex. And the vulnerability of the higher desire partner being able to recognize and communicate what those other needs are can actually bring the lower desire partner closer. Assuming they genuinely mm-hmm. love each other and want to come closer together How warming is it to feel the vulnerability of your partner instead of them saying, you have to give me this thing that I long for, instead saying, when I want sex with you, what I want is a sense of being held and welcomed precisely as I am. That's an invitation instead of pressure. Mm -hmm. Now, don't take that to mean that like now sex needs to happen. It can bring a person one step closer. That is beautiful. It's so great. It has to be so gradual. I wish this were like a simple, easy answer. This is why people would love for there to be a pill for sexual desire. And this is why there will never be a pill for sexual desire because it's so much more complicated.
0: Yeah. One of my recent guests, Jules Shore, she said on on a recent podcast, she said, an offering is no offering at all unless the other person has the ability to say no without punishment or judgment. Yes right and so and yes. I'm thinking of that kind of statement in regards to how we engage sexually with our partners, like if if I can't say no to you then then this, there's no freedom here.
1: you know, I talked to a couple it was a couple of years ago now um, they came to a big workshop I was doing, and they snagged me at lunch and wanted to talk to me about their problem. They had a red come as you are, they had, love come as you are, and uh, they had uh, the it was a heterosexual couple, they had a young child. And she had not actively wanted sex with him since the pregnancy. Mm. They had had sex because she felt guilty and obliged and like she wanted to make him happy and so fine. Um, But he, that's not what he wanted. What he wanted was to be wanted. Yeah. And so I said the thing I say, I was like, have you tried, you know, not having any sex for a while? And he said, for how long? (laughs) (laughs) And they had been dealing with this. Their child was two now. So almost three years. And uh, I was like, well, I mean, I think a reasonable starting place might be three months. And he rolled his eyes and heavy sighed. Ugh. And so I was like, let's pause for a moment. How do you think it feels for your partner to see you have that reaction to the idea of not having sex for three months? And he was, he was a little bit stymied. Yeah. So I, I, t- I turned it over to her. How's it feel for you? <laughs> when you see your partner have that reaction and it all came out.
0: Well, yeah, you're off to the races right there. Yeah,
1: just like I feel pressured. I feel like a failure. I feel like, well, if you don't want to have sex, if I don't want you, then I might as well not have sex with you, I don't want you. Because if I have sex with you, I'm failing. If I don't have sex with you, I'm failing. I might as well not have sex with you and fail. That's how I feel. And he, to his credit, heard her. He began to get it in that moment that it was his disappointment and frustration which is it's all understandable because sex is not just sex sex is also love and acceptance and welcoming and joy and connection and it's all these other really meaningful powerful things especially if you get gender socialized masculine he was taught all his life that first of all the only way he's allowed as a man to access intimacy and emotional connection and a sense of being held is by putting his penis in a girl's vagina. Mm-hmm. And he got taught that his whole worth as a man can be measured by his ability to get his penis into a vagina. So it's missing out on the intimate connection, the emotional connection that is a biological drive. And it is uh, degrading his sense of worth as a human being on earth, as a man. Yeah. So of course it feels really important to him to be wanted and to have sex and to have his partner enjoy and want sex with him. That makes sense to me. and. And when he goes, oh, it creates a dynamic where like, would you want to have sex with someone who felt like if you don't want to have sex with me, there's something wrong with you?
0: That is just like such a distancing move, right? Yeah. Yeah. It puts up a wall. It pushes the partner away.
1: And he truly hadn't recognized that dynamic ever before. And the interesting thing for me was that she hadn't either. They both have this sort of like baseline assumption that he was entitled to the sex he wanted.
0: Well, they've both been socialized that way.
1: Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Many years ago, I had this couple that came to see me and um, they were advanced in their years and he was unable to um, have an erection anymore and was so challenged Hmm. by the fact that he couldn't have an erection and orgasm um, inside of her anymore. She wasn't bothered by it, but it worked. It took so much work for them to get to a point where they could discover another form of relating because we had to work through decades and decades and decades and decades of socialization.
1: Yeah. Even really early on, back in 1999, 2000, right when Viagra was a new thing, It was an active area of research uh, because in couples where he hadn't been having erections for a while now, he could take a drug and suddenly the erections were back and the wife's satisfaction would go down because she was actually pretty okay with the sex they were having Mm -hmm. that didn't involve intercourse. And now it just became all about the erection and all about the intercourse. So, So even though erection came back, sexual function came back, sexual satisfaction and pleasure went down.
0: One of my favorite interventions when couples come in and complain about sex is just to take orgasms off the table. Yes. Like, stop focusing on them. Stop making that the finish line. Take that completely off the table. Exactly. And then we can start having a conversation about what sex is and what it means.
1: Yeah. It's so tricky for people to – I have had multiple interviews with journalists. Therapists don't make this mistake, but journalists have a really difficult time not conflating orgasm and pleasure. Mm Because I say things like, pleasure is the measure of sexual well-being. It's not how often you have it or who you have it with or what position it's, whether or not you like the sex you're having. And they say, well, if orgasm isn't the point, point, if, and I'm like, yeah, orgasm is not the point, but pleasure is not orgasm. Orgasms aren't pleasure. They can overlap much of the time. And you can have pleasure without orgasm, and you can have orgasm without pleasure.
0: And you might even be able to make your pleasure moments last and sustain longer if you take away the focus of the orgasm
1: oh heck yeah because you take away f- the risk of failure yeah yeah mm. the, the, uh, so I'm working on a, a, a science update on come as you are yay and one of the main chapters I'm changing is actually the last chapter on meta emotions how you feel about how you feel <laughs> this is a, a really difficult topic to write about because if there's so many levels of understanding it There's, okay, so you're frustrated with your sexuality because it's not working according to the script. So let's recognize that there's a difference between your script and your sexuality. Let's accept that how your sexuality works is how your sexuality works. And just because it's different doesn't mean it's broken. Like if, you know, the map you're holding in your hands doesn't match the terrain that you're crossing, the map is wrong, not the terrain, right? Right. And so how do you let go of the need to match the map. Because I know a lot of people who metaphorically have been like tromping through the woods of their own sexuality being like, no, I'm sure this is where the path is. It says so on the map. This is the woman who comes to my office and says that uh, she doesn't know what to do. She thinks her clitoris is broken because when her partner touches it, she doesn't experience pleasure. Come to find out they're engaging in zero foreplay. She thinks that just instantaneously touching the clitoris is supposed to lead to like ecstatic orgasms. Because that's what she's seen in porn. Right. And she literally did not believe me when I told her that, you know, you got to create a context that lets your brain interpret clitoral sensations as pleasurable and erotic. Hmm. Because no, no, the map is right. I must be wrong. I must be broken.
0: Nobody's broken.
1: Yeah. What if, what if, what if you are not broken? What if what's broken is everything everyone ever told you about sex? What if you're fine? I love that. That is like
0: such a paradigm shift in a beautiful, expansive way.
1: And it's so difficult. It is so difficult to let go of the scripts and just trust your body and believe it and love it exactly as it is. Um, I talk about confidence and joy a lot and one day uh i was teaching my class and a student raises her hand and said "emily hang on a minute could you um could you define your terms please what does confidence enjoy mean?" and i was like "i don't know. Well, I will get back to you." so i went away for a week and thought about it and when i got back i said "okay confidence is knowing what is true about your sexuality. joy is loving what is true." and that same student raised her hand and went Joy is the hard part. Yeah, I think it is. I think people can know what's true and still struggle with wishing what's true were different. Because this is loving what's true, even if it's not what you were taught should be true or what you wish were true. Loving it even or especially when it doesn't conform with the expectations that other people have of your body.
0: It's about getting to know who the fuck you are and accepting all of your parts, even the parts that feel shadowy or dark or hard to kind of access or. Yes. The places where you have your own judgment about, or you've internalized other people's judgment, just accepting and holding all of that.
1: Yes. I have realized that I need a section on how to practice non-judgment of pleasure. Curiosity. A that- lot of mindfulness practices are about like doing things that feel sort of uncomfortable, like uh-huh. holding your arm above your head and like just noticing that sensation. And this is why mindfulness can be so powerful as an intervention for chronic pain, for example. Um, but around sexuality, a lot of women in particular find it really difficult just to have a neutral curiosity about pleasure and not shut pleasure down as soon as it comes to their body. Well, it's- So, so scary.
0: What have you found about that because like I'm I'm making up stories again in my head as as we're talking about where those messages come from and oh. why pleasure is like just so hard for us to to tolerate.
1: As an example, I was tweeted a story by a woman who read Come as You Are and so she wanted to tell me the story. She watched her adult brother changing his baby daughter's diaper and uh baby was all clean ready for the new diaper he goes to get the diaper when he comes back little baby is touching her clitoris and dad says ah don't touch that now she's not going to remember this moment but how would he have responded if his baby had had a penis instead
0: Mm -hmm.
1: how would he have responded if she had been touching her feet instead we love it when babies find their feet we're so excited that they found their feet
0: And we name their feet. Those are your feet. Those are your toes. Those are your toenails.
1: Yeah. Isn't that so great? Don't you love your feet? Um, And so she's not going to remember this moment, but it is going to accumulate with countless other similar moments until by the time she gets to adolescence, there's going to be this blank spot in her brain where her genitals are supposed to be. She's going to feel like her body doesn't even belong to her, that it's in the public domain for other people to control, that it's not hers to touch and experience. So she will constantly, at the same time that she feels sexual sensations from genital contact, she will also feel shame and disgust and fear and often pain.
0: Yeah. And complicate that with if she's been abused sexually in any capacity. Yeah. Yeah that's just going to get even
1: more intense and even So much more intense, yes. Yeah. And all of these things are things people can heal from mm-hmm. when they can go through the grieving process and come to embrace their body and unlearn all that stuff that they've been learning from as early as infancy.
0: I just got really excited. Can I tell okay. you why? Okay. Yes. So, so I just kind of like really made a really big connection between pleasure and grief and how grief is like this portal that opens the door to allow us to access our pleasure.
1: Yes Yes, that's what the new chapter nine is. Yay. <laughs> I love it. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> <All right. laughs> oh because people people are afraid of pleasure and they're afraid of grief. That's they're grief. really afraid that if they go to the grief that lives inside them, they'll get trapped there forever that it's a <laughs> cave. And they'll just get stuck. And it's not true. Feelings are tunnels. You have to go all the way through them to get to the light at the end. Yeah. And you have to trust that your body will release you from the grief and let you pop and emerge into the light at the end. And when you can heal that stuff inside you, it creates space. When you let go of the grief, it creates space for ecstasy. And, and
0: grief also has an ability to connect us.
1: Oh, gosh. One of the most powerful ways for us to heal through grief is in connection with someone else. If we can just, this is one of the tricky things in relationships, actually, if you've had like a betrayal or other like long-term kind of sense of separation from your partner, one of the most powerful ways people can come back together is to like lie together in bed or whatever position and grieve for what you lost, what you missed, the ways you felt hurt. And when you can trust someone to be present with your grief and they can be present in a non judgmental, neutral, compassionate way, that's the bridge building that happens to heal the grief, to heal the relationship, and create uh, the structure of connection that allows pleasure to exist.
0: Mm. Yes. And, and, you know, we're, we're now coming back also into this like heart to heart, skin to skin, eye to eye kind of holding yeah and neurologically that's how we're wired to connect. I mean, mother, child, yeah. infant, mother, you know, like that's, yep. we're wired that way to, to feel connection and, and sex puts us right there, belly to belly.
1: Yeah. It's so at a biological level, at a cellular level It's so profoundly satisfying and nourishing for us. Mm -hmm. When we can find our way to that connection, even in the face of all the ways we've been taught, we're not allowed to.
0: And even when getting there means we have to go through grief.
1: Yeah, you got to go through the woods to get there.
0: Emily, this has been such an amazing conversation. I so appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us.
1: It was my pleasure. It's great to spend an hour talking about not coronavirus. Right? I mean, we (laughs) did a little
0: bit, but we didn't spend the entire hour on it.
1: Yeah, and I think these are tools that people can use during pandemic time, but then also during times when we're not required to social distance. It helps to build bridges and relationships. And for me, one of the most powerful things about sex science and stress is that it's all about connection and love like the secret cure to burnout is not self-care it cannot be the whole point of exhaustion and overwhelm is that you do not have the wherewithal to care for yourself anymore the cure for burnout must be all of us caring for each other Mm. being willing to accept that care and having the wisdom of how to give that care and one of the ways we do it is with physical connection
0: what are some of the others
1: Uh, Well, the most important one is physical connection. In uh, public health research, uh, there's four kinds of social support. There's uh, emotional support, which counts as like the um, emotional presence and compassion. But there's also instrumental support. So if a person is hungry, you can just give them food. Sometimes you don't need to be like, oh, that sounds really hard. Gosh, that must be tough. Sometimes you can just give them food. Um, There's uh, informational support. If a person is hungry, you can tell them where to find the fruit roll-ups. Informational support. And uh, and so emotional support might be the most important. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the fourth one, you should use only sparingly. In my life, there's only two or three people who are allowed to use the fourth one. It's called appraisal support. And it's where uh, when somebody is experiencing a challenge, you offer them information and insight about themselves and things that are uh, happening with themselves that are a barrier to getting their needs met. Like let me explain to you the way your personality is obstructing your access to the food you need now that you're hungry. Mm, you need like my deep- therapist, my yeah. therapist, my husband, and maybe my twin sister.
0: Yeah. As a therapist, I finally learned, um, it took me a little too long, maybe, maybe not to learn this, but I realized that the reason I could do this with my clients and not with my family members was because my clients were contracting with me and giving me permission to go there.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like it takes a very specific kind of relationship to do that. To yeah. Use it very sparingly. Um, and in my relationship with my sister, for example, um, we were raised in a family where we don't really do emotional connection. And it was very frustrating for us to read the science and be told over and over that like connection is the answer. We're like, fuck, shit, damn it, feelings. So the way it shows up for us in our relationships is not with warm fuzzies but with instrumental support of like here I'm bringing you food I'm going to take your dogs so that you like have no excuse you now need to go to the beach because you are over your limit and you need to go deal with your feelings that's awesome. So it doesn't have to be all like warm gentle loving mm, let me be there for you let me like really feel your feelings with you. Some people love that and it's important and that's not always what it looks like. Sometimes connection and care looks like I brought you uh, four casseroles. Now go take a nap.
0: Right. That, that's perfect. That's perfect. It's so, it's so liberating to know that there's all these different ways to show up for each other. And that when we show up for each other, that's how we're, we're easing this, this potential
1: of burnout on all yeah. of us.
0: Yeah. Yep. Emily, thank you again. Can you let our listeners know where they can find you and where they can find your books?
1: Uh, so the books are Come As You Are and burnout Emily Nagoski if you just google them you can find them I have a website Emily I have been taking a social media break good because it became necessary <laughs> for my mental health <laughs> um, but sometimes I show up on Instagram with photos of my dogs who are super cute
0: oh, well that sounds like a nice little break for the rest of us when you get around to it thank you again so grateful
1: it's and my pleasure
0: I hope to connect with you again yeah A reminder, this podcast is not meant to be a substitute for the depth of work that you'd encounter with a licensed provider. Learn more about my counseling practice, intensives, and our collective for therapists and private practice at connectfulness.com. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Coronavirus Online Therapy, a nonprofit organization with pending 501c3 status, whose mission is to deliver free or low-cost online therapy by licensed professionals in all 50 U.S. states, to essential workers during the coronavirus pandemic. If you are on the front line seeking a referral, if you're a therapist who'd like to join the initiative, or if you're interested in volunteering or getting involved in another way, go to coronavirusonlinetherapy.org. Listeners often ask how they can support the ongoing production of the Connectfulness Practice Podcast. Truly, the best way that you can is to simply subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a review. On Apple Podcasts. I want to express deep gratitude for Sarah and Chris Ferris, the musicians behind the beautiful soundtrack for the Connectfulness Practice podcast, which was recorded and mixed at Kidney Stone Studio. This podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, and copyrighted by Connectfulness Counseling.